And we want to fight for what's right. And regardless of whether or not we're here, the condition should be better for whoever comes after us. So that's why we're striking today. Welcome to On Strike, a production of Workers Strike Back. I'm Bia Lacombe. And I'm Shama Sawant. Today, we are going to share some important updates on the ongoing UAW worker strike. Since we first covered the strike, the strike has been expanded to 38 more plants. We'll talk about what that escalation means for the strike. We'll also respond to some questions that have come up in response to our analysis of the UAW leadership strategy. But first, we're going to cover an ongoing strike of teachers in Britain. It's really important for working people to build links across nations. Capitalism is a global system Unless workers stand in solidarity internationally and build international mass movements, we will not be able to win against the bosses' global race to the bottom for billions of us where they play the game of which workers can they pay the least and screw over all workers so that they can keep most of the wealth for themselves. And just as workers in the United States are facing an unprecedented cost of living crisis, working class people in Britain are facing a crisis of similarly monumental proportions. Skyrocketing inflation, including unaffordable housing, increasingly difficult working conditions with severe understaffing, with increasing numbers of workers being forced to use food banks. The list goes on. Internationalism is not just a nice idea, but a burning objective need arising from the brutal way that global capitalism works. That's why On Strike will be looking at struggles and fightbacks around the world. Today we'll be covering a strike of underpaid school support workers at a school called Ashfield Academy in Leicester, England. The school's teachers and staff serve students with complex medical conditions or serious physical disabilities. The school support workers are members of a British public sector union called Unison. The workers are underpaid and struggling to get by, and mainly women and people of color. They've already forced management to concede and have won some important victories through the strike. This includes an 8% local government pay increase and an agreement to bring classroom-based staff pay in line with other equivalent school workers. The workers have also forced the school to offer a one-time payment of over a thousand pounds. This is the biggest increase won by any school support staff in Britain over the last five years. And the workers won all of this after the school's management apparently claimed that anything beyond their initial and totally inadequate offer would be impossible to give. This shows what can be won when workers get organized and fight back. But the support workers at Ashfield Academy are not done fighting. They are determined to keep building the strike to win the cost of living increases they desperately need. To learn more about this struggle, we are being joined by Tom Barker. Tom is a teaching assistant at Ashfield Academy and a representative with the Unison Union Local, and who has played a leading role in the strike. Hi, thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, I've really enjoyed the, the first few epi episodes of it so far, so I'm really pleased to be on here. Yeah, we're so glad to have you on, and thanks for joining us. So since most of our viewers are based in the United States, Tom, could you tell us a little bit about where you are in England and uh, about the work at your school? Yeah, so Leicester is in the East Midlands in England. So basically, if you put a pin in the, the a map where it's the furthest away from any seaside, that's where Leicester is. Um, like Leicester's um, a city that's very, very poor, 
Um, and it, it's kind of got a big industrial history here where it used to be a very um, wealthy city um, known for the textile industry. Um, but through neoliberalism, Thatcherism and all of that, that, that hollowed out the economy completely. And it's been left in a, a very um, bad situation now. Um, the, the school that I work at, like Bia said, it's um, a special educational needs school. Um, we support students um, with a range of disabilities. Um, some of them are profoundly and multiply disabled. So it's a very challenging job um, because we're focusing on education, but also um, care um, because we have students that really can't do uh, many things for themselves. Um, and uh, it's a very emotionally draining job as well um, because of um, because we become very attached to the students that we work with. And a lot of them have um, extremely life limiting conditions. It's a really highly skilled job. It's emotionally exhausting. It's physically exhausting. We get paid really badly for it. I think when people imagine support workers in schools, they think about like your mum volunteering of an afternoon reading with kids in schools it's not like that anymore it's really highly skilled especially in a setting like this and especially with the cost of living crisis at the moment we just can't afford to continue to work and provide the outstanding care and education that we do we've been underpaid for over a decade all we're asking is for a pay rise uh, according to the, the living uh, cost the cost of living so as we were reporting earlier it sounds like the support staff you've won some important victories but haven't stopped uh, the strike and are determined to win more. Can you explain this a little bit? Uh, they've won a pay increase, but not a cost of living increase? Yeah, so the pay increase that we've won um, was part of the National Joint Council um, pay offer that was made to all public sector workers. Um, and and that I think it's important to say that that pay settlement was a below inflation um, pay offer. So that's one of the reasons why we're continuing to fight is because we're not in a position where we want to or can accept pay cuts anymore. Um, in addition to this, um, that you mentioned that we've won agreement from the school to bring our pay into line with other workplaces. Well, I mean, you sort of look behind the, the, the scenes a little bit there um, that because workers in my particular workplace have been paid less um, than other workplaces. And so we, we don't view that as a pay rise. We view that as the, the correction of a huge historic um, injustice that has been done to members in my workplace. And not just over the recent period, that this has gone on for about a decade uh, where pay in my workplace has been held down below that of the rate for the job. And in in some ways, this touches on some of the issues um, around privatisation in education, because um, my school is an academy, which means that it's slightly removed from um, uh, the control of local councils and local authorities and things like that. Um, and this was a, a policy that was the brainchild of um, New Labour under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, but rolled out on a big level by the Conservative government throughout the 2010s. And a lot of schools today um, are now academies. And one of the things with academies is that they don't have to follow terms and conditions that um, are applied at schools um, across the, the wider country. And so we've been left in a situation now where our pay has been held down significantly below other workplaces. We, we estimate that workers who've been in post for the last 10 years have lost out on more than £10,000. And so you imagine when the cost of living crisis hit, it hit everybody very hard, but it hit members in my workplace 
in an extremely hard way. And people who are already living in poverty have been really sort of pushed over the precipice. We're, we're losing uh, staff hand over foot. They're going to other settings that pay better or they're taking the skills that they have here and they're getting other jobs that pay better. And what that means for the children in the setting is that we don't have the continuity of care that we used to have. Um, which isn't great for them. So this dispute is about them as well. It's not just about our pay and, and our families, which obviously do matter. The setting needs to look after us so we can continue to look after the kids in the best way. Um, and this explains, I think, why or some of the reasons why people have reacted in the way they have and that they've taken hold of this dispute and they're, they're not going to let go until we get a proper victory. I mean, 10 years of being underpaid, it's just stunning. And it, it does, um, you know, make a lot of sense that workers, that you all would be so outraged. And uh, what you're describing with the academies sounds uh, similar to charter schools here in the U.S. where they get public funding, but then aren't forced to meet certain regulations and are, um, you know, like treated more like private schools, uh, you know, making really, profit. Like union busting Totally. And making profits for, um, you know, those at the top, the CEOs and shareholders of these private schools. Um, but I wanted to also ask, you know, what kind of support have you all and your union received from the community and from the rest of the labor movement, especially given the fact that, you know, you all are doing such crucial work for the community, caring for some of the most vulnerable children uh, who have disabilities uh, in your town? Yeah, um, it's, it's been quite incredible, actually that we've had solidarity messages coming in from across the country, but also across the world. And I think it's it's important to underline the, the impact because it's not always, if you're a trade unionist, you, you don't always necessarily see the impact that it has on members. But when those messages have been coming in to my workplace, it's profound, like because the, I think that people can often feel like they're quite isolated, especially in um, single employer disputes. Um, so when we're getting these messages, it really sends, it, it, it reassures people that we're not in this by ourselves. And I think that's really, really important. Um, it, it has been really good, though, to see the uh, the dispute being taken up, not just by Unison nationally, um, but um, other trade unions that are intervening to, um, to write to us as trade union members, but also to write to the school to demand that they settle the dispute, to write to local politicians, to ask that they intervene, to ask to demand that the school settles the dispute. Um, and the, the response from parents um, has, has been more, um, shall we say, it's, it's more challenging because, you know, the impact of these strikes is, is having a big impact on the lives of parents and the students and it is something uh, that, that we do obviously really regret um, but this this is a situation that's been created by our, our employer um, and we've had to be really clear about that all the way through is that none of us actually want to be on strike um, and and I think it's incredible in that context that we've had such strong support from a big section of parents who despite all of the disruption that this has caused to their lives have actually are still writing to us and telling us that they support us, is still doing things in on social media, talking to the press where they can, doesn't mean it's always getting published, um, to say that they support us. And I think what this speaks to is a kind of a, a consciousness about what is going on, where people 
sort of see themselves in um, in some of the members at the school where the, we're all living through a huge cost of living crisis. Um, and it would be easy to go down this route of, well, I, I'm not getting any better, so why should you get any better? But I think that some a certain section of people are drawing a conclusion that that is a completely wrong road to go down and that we need to be supporting each other in our fight to improve conditions. Uh, don't be afraid to stand up for what's right. Um, we found that we are much stronger together. So there will be people in your unions that are reluctant to strike, but if it's the only way to get what you're entitled to, go for it, stand together, stand strong and fight for fair pay. Yeah, and actually that's a very important logical conclusion for the working class to draw, which is that if any section of the workforce anywhere globally wins a victory, especially if it's a very high profile one, then that actually will have ripple effects in many ways. One, including the pressure it puts on other bosses, but most importantly, the confidence that it raises among other working people thinking, well, if they can win and if they want it through this fighting strategy, then we can do the same as well. And I think you touched on another important point, which is the way that capitalism and the ruling elite work where they try to divide and conquer. And so here also we have seen when educators, teachers and support staff go on strike, constantly the narrative in the corporate media is, well, what about the children? And, you know, this is somehow hostile to the interests of young people. We hear similar narratives in relation to nurses strikes right now. Nurses at the Robert Wood Johnson Hospital in New Jersey are on strike. And the narrative that that people are bombarded with is, well, what about the patients? And really, that that's the conclusion we need to draw, that in fact, the interests of patients in the hospital, people who are needing medical care, children and students who need education and other care and the interests of workers are all aligned together. And I think some of the point was brought together with all of the events that have happened in Britain last year, which I wanted you to touch on, Tom, where your strike in, in Leicester comes in the wake of a massive wave of strike actions last year, which really is the biggest wave of strike actions in Britain in decades. And that was combined with the Enough is Enough campaign. And also there were um, uh, Amazon workers at uh, over three fulfillment centers last year who uh, went on a walkout when they when they received this insulting 35p pay increase, which is just, you know, just uh, just uh, remarkable that bosses think that they can get away with that. So if you can give us some background about all of this that's happening in Britain, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Um, just just to go back to a, a point that you you made actually just then about how they divide workers uh, against patients or service users, because I, I do think that that's something worth um, looking at because this wider context of the strike wave in the UK, I don't think that we would have been able to successfully um, uh, win strike mandates in my workplace if it wasn't for the stuff that was going on in the NHS, for example, the, the, because these are workers that for the last 13 years have been absolutely brutalised by the government um, and forced into a situation where they did the very thing that they were instinctively didn't want to do, and that was to take strike action, and um, because they know the disruption it had has, but but that context has enabled us, uh, but who are very similar workers in lots of ways, to take similar action. Um, I, I think just in terms of the general um, context in 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 Britain over the last year or two years. Obviously, we've had a huge strike wave. Um, there's been 
some of the left-led unions like in um, the Post, which is the CWU, and Rail, which is the RMT union, um, that they've been to the fore in some ways in um, fighting back against the government and the employers and fighting for real-terms pay increases, not getting it, unfortunately, but they, they set out an important stall, I think, there. But but following on from that, we've had huge wave of strikes, including NHS, so health workers and education workers, including teachers um, at school, teachers at sixth form colleges, teachers and universities. And what I think is really interesting about a lot of these workers is that they're also women workers as well. Um, th- these are professions where the, the majority of people in them are women. And I don't think that's any coincidence, right? Because because this uh, this system that we live in is deeply misogynistic, deeply, deeply sexist. And so I think when we're seeing these social explosions happening at the moment in the form of a strike wave, it, it's not really surprising that you're seeing sectors that are dominated by um, women workers um, that are to the fore in this. Um, the, the, the wider context for all of this will probably be very familiar to US audience as well, is that we've had a, a whole period with um, deteriorating living standards. I mean, and that's sort of over the last 30, 40 years with uh, neoliberalism, but an acceleration of that over the last 10 years, um, 10 to 15 years since the 2008 economic collapse. Um, and workers have really been put in a, an extremely desperate situation. And so in some ways have been forced to fight back. But I, I don't think necessarily it's always been a negative whip that's making people um, uh, fight. I, I, don't, I don't think that that's we don't want things to get worse before they get better. I actually think some of the, the, the main impetus for why um workers are fighting back now has been the experience of things like COVID um, and the pandemic, where we saw who really does the work in society, who does the work that needs to be done, who is it that that doesn't make a difference when they go home and uh, do nothing. And what the the kind of conclusions that were drawn from that was, it was often the people who are worse off, often the people who are most exploited, that are the ones that uh, play the most important role. So I think that that's kind of a a more positive the thing that has given people a little bit of confidence in fighting back that they know that what they're doing is deeply undervalued and that they deserve a lot better um there's there's lots of other things to say about the kind of wider context as well because obviously with the climate crisis we've got um a huge wave of radicalization of young people in particular um who are also fighting around issues of oppression um against um racist sexist policing um things that i know uh would be very familiar in the us as well and and we have a government whose answer to all of these huge problems well they don't really have an answer so their answer is to lurch substantially to the right and start peddling to their base using divide and rule strategies um going on attacks against um in particular trans people um to try and um to try and just a standard divide and rule Uh, the, the really unfortunate thing in all of this though is is that we've got literally no opposition um from the the Labour Party. So when the government is doing these things, um, it, there's no kind of counterbalance to that. Um, the real major counter, like in a parliamentary way, the, the major counterbalance to all of this has been movements on the streets and in the workplaces, which thankfully um, is having a big effect as well. 
You're right that there is not necessarily a linear relationship that things need to get worse before workers get organized and fight back. In fact, uh, just having the confidence to fight back has a lot to do with, and that's what you were referring to as the sort of the positive element. So for example, one of the things we're seeing now in the United States is the relatively low unemployment rate is actually part of the equation of why workers feel emboldened to fight back, not only in the form of strike action, which obviously is the most important, but also in the way, for example, that tech workers are defying the Amazon and Facebook and other bosses saying, no, we don't want to come uh, to the office, we are, we are productive enough uh, working from home, and we get more time with our family, and to do, uh, you know, to focus on our own personal needs uh, at the same time as working. So all of this, I think, also shows that how emboldened workers feel has a lot to do with whether they can, f they feel that they have the room to push back, and that's important to recognize. The other point you made, which I just just wanted to make sure our U.S. viewers understand, you referenced the NHS, which is the National Health Service which is the publicly funded healthcare that we've had and you've had in Britain for the last many decades. We'll be touching on the fight for Medicare for All and really what whatever happened to that fight in the United States. Uh, and we'll be coming back to you, Tom, in that episode uh, to understand how the NHS was won in Britain and what's happening there right now. You also touched on a very other, a very important point, uh, other important point, which is the fact that just like uh, in the U.S., where we don't have any real political alternative for the work, for working class, where Republicans and Democrats have differences between them, but at the end of the day, what you saw was by the Biden administration and even the progressive Democrats going along with the breaking of the railroad worker strike. So there's really no party that represents the union movement or represents workers. And there's a similar situation in Britain as well. Hopefully, we can touch on that more when we come back to talk about the question of healthcare, but for now, uh, can you tell us what have the lessons been from the last year or two, especially from the Enough is Enough campaign, and what, in your view, are the lessons for from Enough is Enough for the movement here, and especially for Worker Strike Back, which, as you know, is a similar initiative? Yes, yeah, good question. Um, there's huge opportunities, I think. Um, that that's what enough is enough really came out of. There was, I think it was, I don't have the exact statistics, but I think it was something like half a million people signed up for it within a day of its formation. So there was a huge move, potential movement behind it. Um, but but it, I think what it also showed um, after a period of time, it became very clear is that some of the problems with the union leaderships who may want to use campaigns not like that not to develop a kind of organic grassroots movement of people organizing on the streets and in workplaces um but to drive it down a, a kind of a route where it was doing important work about supporting picket lines but really trying to limit um the potential that it, it, it could have um so uh, i mean it's it's been very different in different places. So I, I think in some some places across the country, they had like truly massive rallies that were really impressive, um, and and the enough is enough um, locally took on a bit of a life of its own. That certainly happened here in Leicester to an extent, um, where uh, we were able to use it to organise um, rallies, to organise um, trips to pickets, picket lines to support workers taking strike action. Um, um, and some of our members were also able to um, 
orientate it towards the local council um, who were proposing um, attacks against council tenants in, in the form of um, energy price rises. And we successfully pushed back against that. So it showed that there was something there that could potentially have been used for lots of different purposes. Um, but there wasn't a kind of will um, at the top um, to, to try and maintain it, to give it a kind of focus um, and to... Um, and to try and ensure that it, it wins import all of the important demands that it had um, when it was formed. Um, yeah, so I, th I think that it showed on the one hand that there was enormous potential, um, but also the dangers of leaving these things in the hands of um, kind of trade union leaders that, that don't necessarily want to see things um, go like flourish in the way potentially we might want to. Um, I, I think in terms of where it's uh, similar to Workers' Strike Back, obviously, I know that's a, like a really important initiative um, in the US. I, I, I think that, that it has the potential to do some of the things that Enough is Enough could have done um, to, to win workers to like very sort of clear um, ideas about how we can fight back and, in, and win um, improvements in living conditions, um, what the best methods are. Um, but, but I think the, the critical thing where it could be different is the leadership. Um, and and that like obviously we want it to, the, I would imagine you want it to, to develop quite deep roots into the communities and in the trade union movement as well. Um, and I, th I think there is kind of enormous um, potential for doing that. Um, but 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 I think at the beginning um, with the enough is enough, having trade established trade union leaders maybe was more of a problem. So not having that problem to begin with maybe is a bit of a solution, might, might take it down a better path. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, with Workers' Strike Back, we want it to be, uh, in or like the point of it is to be an organization uh, by workers for working class struggle where workers can sink those deep roots, like you said, into struggles that are happening in their communities, but also stay connected to national and international struggles, but to, to learn how to fight back and to do that in, a, in an ongoing way um, and also to build the organization uh, through the course of those struggles and not, you know, allow it, you know, all of that energy to sort of go nowhere. <laughs> Um, because I think we need these kind of lasting organizations in the U.S. working class, um, for sure. It's been missing for a long time. Thanks, Tom, for being here and uh, for everything that you shared. Before we let you go for today, I wanted to ask you one other question. Uh, BI and I are members of Socialist Alternative in the United States. You are a member of Socialist Alternative in England, Wales, and Scotland, and we are sister organizations affiliated with the International Socialist Alternative. So I wanted to ask, as a socialist, what do you think all of, you know, everything that we've been talking about on both sides of the Atlantic, what do you think all of this says as a socialist to you about the crisis of capitalism itself? That we need to change the world. Uh, that it's more urgent than it's ever been. That capitalism doesn't provide any solutions um, to the problems that working people are facing today. It, I think more and more we're seeing um, political parties and governments um, turn into really sort of barbaric policies as a way of dividing people. Um, and we need to fight back against that with solidarity, um, that we need to build campaigns that bring people um, together, workers and the oppressed all together, um, to fight for a society that's 
uh, run for the interests of ordinary people, not for the billionaires. Well, thanks so much, Tom. And we wish you uh, and your fellow union members good luck. Please send them our best wishes. Yes, and lots of solidarity. No wheels! No wheels! No wheels! No wheels! No wheels! In our episode Tuesday night last week, we reported on the crucial United Auto Workers strike and also presented our analysis of the strategy being used by the UAW leadership. As we noted at the time, the leadership was getting ready to expand the strike from the initial three locations. Since then, the strike has been expanded to 38 more locations. We believe that spreading the strike even more and much more rapidly is the clearest path to victory. The UAW strike is of major significance to the whole working class. Millions of workers around the country are inspired that the union is taking on the big three automakers, Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, and shutting down production with strong demands like a 40% pay increase, an end to all tiers, and defined benefit pensions. If the strike is successful in winning the key demands, it will have an emboldening effect on worker organizing. Yeah, I'm excited to be part of this fight. I think this fight is going to make a difference, not just for our union, but for the whole working class. We, we speak for, for, for the worker, working class. Um, you know, the UAW, auto workers in general, was, used to be the gold standard. Auto worker used to be the benchmark of the middle class. Now we're the benchmark of corporate greed. It's ridiculous. They always say it's not the first person that gets up and dances, it's the second person that gets up and dances, you know? Everyone else kind of giggles and laughs at the first person. When the second person gets up, everyone kind of normalizes it and gets up and dances along, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what we're trying to be for the middle class. We want to bring them up. If not the auto workers, UPS, who is it, you know? We really welcome last Friday's escalation across the nation to at least 20 states. Among other things, this means that there are now many more pickets for community supporters where they can show their solidarity with striking UAW members. Worker strike back activists have been out at picket lines in multiple states from coast to coast over the last week to support the strike. Bia, you visited the UAW picket line in Beaverton, Oregon on Friday, which is about a three-hour drive from Seattle. joined by Margot Stewart, who is On Strike's lead cinematographer and editor, and by Natalie Bailey. Both Margot and Natalie are also activists with Worker Strike Back. Bia, can you share some of what you saw at the pickets? It was really exciting. I think workers on the whole were excited to be out. It was a, a Chrysler distribution, uh, parts distribution facility in Beaverton, Oregon. Uh, and the local, UAW local, uh, for that facility is covered by an amalgamated local that includes both Stellantis and Ford workers. I would say that you know, workers uh, really understood the fact that they were out there, not just for themselves as UAW workers, but for all working people, talking about these demands that they're fighting for that you know, would impact the lives of working people across the country. And we're so excited about how much support there is from regular working people for the strike. We talked to one woman, Lupe, who 
actually, it's a pretty shocking situation. She's been there for seven years, and in another year, after she's there for eight years, she'll top out at a wage of $25 this, this an hour. This is the immigrant worker you talked to. She's an immigrant woman, and she was gonna, her wage is going to top out at $25 an hour after eight years of working scandalous. at this facility. It is. It's scandalous. Compared to like what you're paid versus like how much the cost of everything it's, is going it's, up. It's very unfair. Yeah. I don't even make $25 an hour. Yeah. And you've been working here for seven years? Yes. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Compared to the CEO. You made the CEO how much millions that yeah. he makes. It's just not fair. And, you know, she was really excited to be out on the picket line. I think overall, you know, workers are, though, concerned about the strike uh, extending for a long period of time. You know, the cost of living crisis has hit even workers who have been around for longer. You know, they were talking about the impacts of the cost of living and rising cost of gas on their families and how, you know, the strike does you know, impact their financial situation, even though they understand the importance of it. And so to me, this speaks of the need to have a short, sharp strike, you know, that doesn't... All out strike. An all out strike that, you know, escalates to the maximum point that UAW workers can, you know, put pressure and halt the profits of uh, the bosses at the big three. Right, and enforce concessions. I think if it was me, I would have pulled everyone, they won. I wish the, they can come to an agreement and nobody could should go out on strike, but I know that we are ready to everyone, 100% of the employees to go out on strike. And as long as it takes... It works every four years. You, you yeah. want to go through this hardship, hardship every single four years? No, we need to fight for what's right. They need to do what's right and give it our, our members and our, their families what's right. And, and the other thing you shared with me earlier, uh, which I thought was worth including also, and, and we've heard this from many other pickets actually across the nation, the solidarity that exists among workers, you know, to end the tier system. You can talk about that. Yeah, the ending the tier system and winning cost of living increases were the most talked about demands, I think, for workers you know, we heard over and over again that it just feels wrong to be doing the same job as a coworker. You're working side by side uh, every day and you're getting paid like twice or three times as much just because that worker was hired just a few years later or something than you were. I'm, I'm what they call a legacy employee. So, so I, I'm full benefits, uh, max pay, um, full pension, um, all that stuff. That, that's stuff that, that people hired after about 2007 didn't get. They eliminate the tears. Um, that, that the people we're working right next to should be making the same amount of money. It's created animosity. It, it, it's kind of the divide and conquer mindset has, has been established by the company. And, and for years, it, it's worked under the guise that we are helping the company uh, exist through the bankruptcies. And so, you know, workers are outraged by this and really want to fight to end all tiers. Um, so I thought that that was really notable. There was also, you know, workers who recognized the impact of you know, all of the labor movement action that's been happening over the last few years. One worker noted how, you know, he had been watching Starbucks workers fighting, uh, you know, to unionize and watching Amazon workers take on that corporation and saying, you know, it feels like, you know, workers have been like, you know, opening this door so that UAW members could come and kick it open. And I think that that's what workers want to see is kicking this door open on this strike and going for an all-out escalation. Right. And that's exactly what the billionaire bosses don't want, this contagious effect of worker action. Exactly. We're now two weeks into the strike. Last week, when on-strike correspondent M. Smith spoke to us from the picket line in Toledo, 13,000 auto workers were on strike. As of today, that number has grown to about 18,000. This is still a small fraction, about 13% of the 150,000 who work at the big three. 
even with only a fraction of their power currently being used, autoworkers have already forced the companies to make some important concessions. Each of the three companies is offering wage increases above 20% for the four-year contract. Ford has been forced to reinstate annual cost of living adjustments, or COLA, to at least partially keep up with soaring inflation. But to be clear, most of these concessions happened before the strike began, when the companies were still worried about the possibility of an all-out strike and were trying to prevent it. Since the strike began, the companies have made almost no movement toward meeting workers' demands for a 40% wage increase, eliminating the tier system, restoring pensions to all workers, and moving to defined benefit plans, and a 32-hour work week for 40 hours pay. GM and Stellantis have still refused to even bring back COLA. My son, he didn't want to go to college, but he wanted to work, and I said, I can get you in here with me, and I did, and he's been here almost three years, and he makes half of what I make. And he works twice as hard as me. They make up 71% of this whole corporation. The two tier make up 71%. So we're gonna fight out here to get that for them. They deserve it. I agree, I'm, I'm the same way. You gotta fight for these young guys. They, uh, they deserve everything we get. That's right. The central reason why the companies haven't moved any further is that the strike hasn't hurt them yet in a decisive way that could force substantive concessions. The bosses themselves are saying this. The Financial Times, which is an unabashed mouthpiece of the billionaire class, reported last week that from the perspective of investors, the financial impact of the strike in the first week was quote-unquote negligible. As OnStrike pointed out last week, none of the first three plans to go on strike were any of the company's most profitable plans, like those that produced the Ford F-150 or the Chevy Silverado or the Dodge Ram 1500. Shutting down parts distribution centers will have some impact on the dealerships, but it seems this will mainly impact existing customers coming in for repairs. It will have only a limited effect, if any, on the sale of new vehicles and the big three's profits. A worrying development is that following some concession from the Ford company, the UAW pickets are no longer targeting Ford except at their assembly plant in Wayne, Michigan, where only the paint and final assembly workers are on strike. First of all, this goes against one of the most powerful aspects of the strike, which is workers at all of the big three striking together. We believe it was a mistake for the union leadership to only escalate at GM and Stellantis this past Friday, but not at Ford. This so-called carrot-and-stick approach of making concessions to Ford will not put more pressure on GM and Stellantis, but less. All three of the companies have failed to meet workers' demands. This should mean that the strike escalates everywhere. And if Ford were to meet all of the union's demands, which they are still very, very far from, then workers should use their strike power to demand that Ford put pressure on the other companies to match that offer. And they should make it clear to CEOs, no one goes back to work unless everyone has a strong contract. To get a sense of how much pressure the auto bosses have been feeling, Let's listen to another one of the boss's spokespeople. Stephen Brown, senior director at Fitch Ratings, said the impact of the first eight days when only three plants were on strike would be quote-unquote limited. Brown went on to say that all three companies have quote, robust liquidity positions that will help them to withstand a potentially drawn-out period of production disruption. End quote. UAW members deserve to win every one of their demands, and it is possible to win them. But as the bosses have boasted publicly, they have the resources to wait out even a long strike, particularly one with limited effects on their bottom line. Much more pressure will need to be mounted on these companies. This will require striking at facilities that are key to the production process, as well as the facilities that produce the most profitable vehicles. 
In our inaugural episode of On Strike, we talked about Amazon workers who have recently launched a union campaign at the company's biggest air hub, KCVG, in Northern Kentucky. The New York Times wrote an article about that union drive earlier this year in which they explained how the KCVG air hub is a strategic choke point for Amazon's whole delivery operation nationally, which gives the workers serious power. As the article says, quote, while it is rare for employees to pry loose costly concessions from Amazon, workers who threaten choke points within its delivery network appear to have won concessions multiple times, end quote. In other words, the thing that gives these workers leverage is their power to shut down Amazon's profits. As one of the workers at KCVG put it, if enough truck drivers got fed up and simply refused to move, it would shut the whole operation down. The expansion of electric vehicle production is an existential question for UAW. The big three are using the necessary transition toward electric vehicles as an opportunity to strike a huge blow against the union by attempting to move production of EV batteries to non-union facilities. For this reason, UAW is correctly demanding that all EV plants, regardless of where they're located, must be union facilities. However, so far, not only are the bosses not showing any signs of accepting this demand on the basis of the current strength of the strike, they've gone on the offensive against workers. On Monday, Ford announced that it would be halting construction of its $3.5 billion electric vehicle battery plant in Marshall, Michigan. Ford said that it's limiting spending on the facility, quote, until we're confident about our ability to competitively operate the plant, end quote. It's hard to read that as anything other than an anti-union threat and a blatant attack on jobs. This alone requires an urgent escalation of the strike against Ford. It shows the critical importance of using all the power that the union has to build the strongest possible strike, because far-reaching demands like the one on electric vehicles will not be won on the basis of a limited, narrow strike of a small part of the workforce. UAW President Sean Fain recently said that the strike was not about living to fight another day, that now is the moment. When I hear the phrase, live to fight another day, I want to literally beat the shit out of somebody. We had that embedded in our brains as workers coming through over the years, and it would drive me up a wall when I would hear a leader say, live to fight another day. Another day came and went over and over and no one fought. And so our, this is our time. This is our, we call this our generation defining moment. This is it. We fully agree. And UAW has enormous public support behind them. That's why we think the current slow escalation plan should be sped up. From their first announcement of what they're calling the stand-up strike, Fain and his team have said that their strategy is today's version of the sit-down strikes which built the auto union in the 1930s. The importance of the 1930s auto strikes can hardly be overstated. And it's exciting to hear a union leader referencing the lessons of that powerful strike for the present day. Unfortunately, we think this comparison by the UAW leadership is misleading. The history-defining sit-down strikes of the 1930s brought General Motors to its knees. Those strikes were not aimed, as the current strike seems to be so far, at the softest targets. Nor were they something that was announced unilaterally by the top union leadership. On the contrary, these militant struggles grew out of the shop floor anger against the high speed of the production line, unjust discipline, and overall horrendous conditions the GM bosses were inflicting on the workers. GM even used violent and dangerous right-wing groups, including a splinter from the KKK, to attack and intimidate the workers and socialists who were seen as the leaders of worker unrest. Famously, the first sit-down in Flint, Michigan, was against the unjust dismissal of two brothers, known as the Perkins Boys, 
who had protested against being expected to do work that was formerly done by three workers. This act by GM was like lighting a match to a powder keg. The workers sat down and stopped production until the Perkins boys were returned to work. It was through actions like this one that workers learned in practice how much power they had on the job. Strikes broke out in plants as far apart as Atlanta, Georgia, Kansas City, Missouri, and Cleveland, Ohio. The union formulated a set of clear and powerful demands, including an annual wage adequate to provide health, decency, and comfort. The emphasis on an annual wage addressed the unpaid seasonal layoffs, which were frequent in the industry at the time. The demands also included an eight-hour workday, seniority, overtime pay, spreading work through shorter hours, safety measures, union recognition, and elimination of speed-ups. Then, militant union organizers, many of whom were socialists or communists, targeted a series of key plants that produced components without which the rest of the factories in the General Motors network could not build cars. In other words, they strategically shut down the supply chain and with it, most of General Motors. Beginning with the famous Fisher Body Plants in Flint, Michigan, and expanding it as the world spread as quickly as they could, and all without a strike fund. They picked the Fisher Body Plants in Flint as the starting point because in addition to being mother plants, they each contained a critical mass of committed unionists who were already respected organizers and could carry out the actions necessary to secure the plants. To quote the classic labor history book, Strike, by Jeremy Brecker, the union coordinated the strike and put forward union recognition as its central demand. The strike spread rapidly from Flint and other initial centers throughout the General Motors system. Auto workers sat down at Guide Lab in Anderson, Indiana, at Chevrolet in Cleveland, Fisher Body in Janesville, Wisconsin, and Cadillac in Detroit. Regular strikes developed at Norwood and Toledo, Ohio, and Turnstead, Michigan. General Motors was forced to halt production at Pontiac, Oldsmobile, Delio Remy, and numerous other plants. GM's projected production for January of 224,000 cars and trucks was cut to 60,000, and in the first 10 days of February, it produced only 151 cars in the entire country." End quote. Before the sit-down strike was over, 50 plants with 135,000 workers in 35 cities and 14 states were shut down. Not only that, but afterwards, although the agreement signed with GM only granted a limited recognition, those workers were able to enforce fair treatment, health and safety, and most importantly, reductions in the killing pace of work by continuing to use the sit-down strategy whenever and wherever management tried to resist. The current UAW strike is much needed and deeply inspiring to workers across the country, but we should not confuse the leadership's current strategy with that of the sit-down strikes. Rather than going all out to stand up against the attacks by the big three bosses, the current strategy of the UAW leadership includes telling the vast majority of its members to keep working without a contract. One of the most common arguments we've seen is that the strategy of slowly escalating the strike is smart because it conserves the union's strike fund by having only a fraction of the workers on strike. Part of this argument that's been stated by some is that those who've been laid off during the strike can use unemployment benefits rather than drain the union's strike fund. It's not clear at all, though, how many states even allow this option. As an article from Axios said, quote, 
uncertainty over unemployment eligibility is rampant, end quote, because eligibility will depend on specific state laws and a range of other factors. According to the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services, it's also possible striking workers and employees at a company with striking workers may be disqualified from receiving unemployment benefits. According to UAW Region 2B Director David Green, it's as clear as mud. Axios also reports that the union is already using its strike fund for about 600 non-striking workers at Ford's Michigan Assembly Plant, who were temporarily laid off last week when other workers at the plant were called to strike. The UAW has built a strike fund in excess of $800 million, which has been estimated to be enough to last for an all-out strike of about three months. For context, the General Motors strike in 2019 lasted just 40 days. In reality, a militant all-out strike of three months would cost the auto industry bosses tens of billions of dollars and put enormous pressure on them to concede to the union's demands. It could include picketing dealerships, as the UAW threatened to do toward the end of the GM strike in 2019, and potentially bringing out thousands of community supporters. It would mean finding all the remote lots where the stockpiled 80 to 100 day supplies of vehicles are parked and picketing them to allow Teamster car haulers to honor the picket line by turning around their trucks and going away empty. Also, the amount of money in the strike fund should not be what determines the strategy on the basis of simple arithmetic. If the strike fund really did run short, let's not forget that an impressive 75% of people support the strike. Working people recognize what it would mean for all of us if UAW were to win a 32-hour work week, an end to tears, and pensions and health care for all workers. If the UAW leadership is really worried about the size of the strike fund, they need to put their faith in working people to donate to the cause. The union could set up an appeal tomorrow to raise the funds that are needed. Worker Strike Back would be happy to donate, as would the millions of ordinary working class people who understand what's at stake. In addition, as some of you know, as an elected representative of working people for nearly 10 years, Shama has only taken home the average worker's wage and donated the rest of her six-figure city council salary after taxes into a working class solidarity fund. We are ready to donate from this solidarity fund for the UAW strike fund, just as we have done for countless struggles, including the fight to unionize Amazon. An all-out, short, sharp strike is completely different from a passive strategy of waiting out the employers, the infamous one day longer strategy, which has failed our movement so many times. The stronger and more militant this strike is, the sooner it can be over, with the workers' demands won. This brings us to the question of the role of the rest of the working class in a strike. The UAW's 150,000 members working in the big three auto companies can't be expected to take on Wall Street and the entire ruling class solely by themselves. The union's boldest demand for a 32-hour work week for 40 hours pay is a historic demand for the labor movement globally. In the 1930s, entire communities turned out to support the sit-down strikers. Workers had live debates over what was needed to win, and rank-and-file democratic structures were set up to run the factories that had been occupied. Socialists and communists played key roles. If we're going to rebuild a fighting labor movement and end the rule of the billionaires, Everyone has to be able to contribute, not only their time and money, but also their ideas. On Strike would love to have any UAW leaders or rank-and-file workers from any viewpoint on our show in the next weeks to discuss this historic strike. We invite you to reach out to us at solidarity at workerstrikeback.org. It is concerning when commentators tell members of the working class to stay in our lane 
while themselves being well-paid members of an elite inner circle of politicians and other power brokers. Our recent broadcast, which featured myself talking with our correspondent M. Smith, who was on the picket line and interviewing strikers in Toledo, was attacked online by The Intercept's Ryan Grimm, who regularly runs interference for the progressive establishment. Last year, when Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other members of the so-called squad voted to deny 115,000 railroad workers their right to strike, Ryan Grimm raced to their defense, claiming that this was somehow a clever strategy rather than a blatant act of betrayal by the squad. In his new attack on our analysis of the UAW strike, Grimm claims we have no right to an opinion, although apparently he does, on the direction that this or any strike is taking. In this latest brainchild of Ryan Grimm, he argues that the squad's strike-breaking vote is what won sick days for a majority of railroad workers in the aftermath of the strike. In reality, this claim is yet another slap in the face to those workers, as well as a blatant denial of reality. These gains, which a section of railroad workers did win recently, resulted from the mass outrage against the railroad companies over the breaking of the strike, which put pressure on President Joe Biden to do something for workers. The Biden administration, in turn, pressured the railroad companies to come back to the table to discuss granting sick time. Agreements were negotiated with the unions, and today about 75% of railroad workers are allowed to take sick time under their union contracts. It's not the full demand of the workers, and it unfortunately doesn't include all railroad workers, but it is an important step forward. It was made possible by mass working-class solidarity and pressure, despite the shameful betrayals of the Democrats, not because of them. And sick time was not the only demand of the railroad workers. The far broader issues are encompassed in the brutal attendance policies known as precision scheduled railroading, which is a fancy term for describing extreme and sometimes life-threatening working conditions, such as dangerous levels of short staffing and less time for safety inspections. Other demands were time off to spend with family or just time to live life and health and safety, and including the length of trains that can be operated by a two or even one person crew. As we saw with the horrific disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, none of these issues has been addressed. One sign of how much pressure the UAW strike has already placed on the auto companies and on corporate politicians is that even the outright reactionary billionaire Donald Trump is being forced to visit. Sean Fain was absolutely correct to denounce Trump and expose his visit as thoroughly disingenuous. Fain said, quote, every fiber of our union is being poured into fighting the billionaire class in an economy that enriches people like Donald Trump at the expense of workers, end quote. As I said last week, Trump is a snake oil salesman. In the absence of a genuine left alternative to the Republican and Democratic parties, Trump has attempted to pose as a friend of American working people, but the working class cannot afford to have any illusions in the dangerous ideology Trump represents. And at the same time, we think the UAW leadership also needs to clarify to their members that they cannot have faith in President Biden either, who also visited the UAW pickets. Biden's recent visit shows the pressure on him, which is credit to UAW members. But Biden and the Democrats are just as much representatives of Wall Street interests as the Republicans are. Biden led the way in breaking the railroad union strike, completely refused to do anything to raise the federal minimum wage, and declared that he would veto Medicare for all even if the bill came to his desk. I 
don't I don't know I'm not gonna claim to know a lot about what happened with the railroad. Yep. But you heard about it. But I heard about it and I think that should not happen again. Working people and the union movement desperately need our own political representation. It's really important that Cornell West is running as a left independent from the Green Party and that he visited UAW pickets and spoke up in solidarity with the workers and their demands on the picket line. I know the president was here yesterday and the symbolic gestures, you know, they're empty if you don't follow through. He broke the back of railway worker strikes already. He's been rationalizing corporate greed for the last 35 years. So it's nice for him to come and to say some words and things, but we need more than pretty words. I'm all for having a different party, number one. You know, and so what he's come out with, you know, like I said, he's ready to join the movement. You know, he understands the middle class is the, the class that keeps this running. You know, him push us and we can push him. Pundits who are cheerleading the stand-up strike strategy say that it's effective because it provides room for escalation. But this completely misses the point. It's the escalation itself that's important, not the length of time it takes to get there. An airplane doesn't fly higher and faster because it takes off from a 30-mile runway. It just means it takes longer to get off the ground. No amount of surprise or chaos is a substitute for actually halting the boss's profits. Workers can't afford to wait a week between each escalation. They have bills to pay, which only add up the longer the strike goes on. These companies have known the workers' demands from the start. They're not about to suddenly wake up with a guilty conscience. If this strike is going to be based on escalation, that should happen every day or every few days, and at an exponential rate, not slowly over months, until all 150,000 workers are out on strike. Thanks for watching today. On Strike is a production of Worker Strike Pack, a nationwide organization fighting on working class demands like a $25 an hour minimum wage, union jobs, Medicare for all, and against discrimination and oppression. Worker Strike Pack is also calling for a new party for working people because neither the Republican Party nor the Democratic Party represents us. Don't forget to hit the subscribe and like buttons. Find out more at workersstrikepack.org and donate. You can also now support our program on Patreon. On Strike is a broadcast entirely for working people and funded entirely by working people. See you next week. Solidarity.